Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. I was very aware that I'd had this fear that I might lose her one day. I didn't know how, but it was just almost an alert signal. And it was like it was sort of playing out in front of my eyes when it did happen. Not long before the day she disappeared, she was out riding Commodore. She knew, and I knew without us having to talk about it, that she needed to be home by about five. This particular day, she came rushing round to the kitchen window with Commodore, and I think it was ten past five, and she said, I'm so sorry, I'm late, Mum. I knew you'd be so worried. It was almost like a forerunner for what was yet to come. Kesa disappeared on the Thursday afternoon, and I remember saying to my sister-in-law on the Sunday, what if she never comes home? And I have no understanding of why I said that, but it was obviously something that I was feeling within me. What if she never comes home? Kersa Jensen never did come home. It's been 34 years since her mother Robin last saw her. She disappeared on the first day of spring in 1983 in Napier while riding her horse along the beach. She was only 14 years old, a teenager who dreamed of being a vet and a rider for the New Zealand equestrian team. Mark Todd was her hero. When Robin thinks of her, she still pictures a bubbly young girl who loved animals, horseback riding, and English classes. But today, she would have been 48. Every year, the police receive around 10,000 reports about missing people. In the vast majority of cases, it doesn't take long for the police to find them. Some people don't want to be found, and some never make it back home because of the actions of others. They remain missing, or as Robin says, lost. No one knows for sure what happened to Krissa that spring day. Did she fall off her horse? Was she attacked? Did someone take her? The police found blood in a piece of rope. They even had a suspect. Yet decades later, the case remains open. I'm Paloma Migoni, and this is The Lost. I'll be looking into what might have happened in some of the country's most mysterious missing persons cases and talking to the families about the void left behind. I'm doing a very big sort-up in my garage of things that I don't need anymore, but... When I came across Raggedy Bunny, I wasn't sure I could throw him out. A much-dubbed rabbit. I can't believe it. It's really raggedy. Really raggedy, isn't it? So he got that nickname long before he got to the state. But um, When did she get him? Cursa was she three was years three. old when she got Raggedy Bunny, a gift from her uncle, Robin's brother, who won it at a work raffle. It doesn't look like a bunny now, The stuffing has sunk to its old brown and black fur, leaving it faceless. I can't find any sign of its eyes. 
When I meet Robin at her home in Gisborne, she's packing and is two days away from auctioning her house. She wants to be closer to her son Michael and grandchildren in Auckland. On the dining room table, old-time stained photos of Chrissa are laid out for me. Many pictures are of her with her horses she had over the years, her sheep, and one of her with a bowl of coleslaw for her 10th birthday. Chrissa didn't ask for lollies, but preferred shredded cabbage for her special day. Her eyes are a blue-green slash. In that photo, they probably... What would they look there, do you think? They look a bit green, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And other times, she, they would look blue, but yeah, greeny blue. Sort of thing. Robin's favourite picture of Cursa hangs on the back wall overlooking this the room. The it's the one she gave the police just after Cursa went missing. In it, she's smiling. Her blonde fringe sits right above her green, or maybe blue eyes. It was taken on her first day of high school, She's wearing the green and white check uniform from Colenso High. When that photo was taken, her father Dan was the Anglican minister at St. Augustine's Church in Napier. Her mother was a music teacher at a school. They're not together anymore. Cursa was born in Invercargill on December 15, 1968. A shy girl, but her mother says once she got to know you, there was no stopping her. Cursa loved animals. Animals never let you down, she would say. People do. She started off with having pet lambs. She loved it, absolutely loved it. But that pet lamb had to go back to the farm. And then her friend, who was the farmer's daughter, told her which day her pet lamb went off with the truck to the works. That was enough to make her almost vegetarian. She wouldn't eat anything that came from a sheep for a very long time because it could have been her lamb chops who was her first one. And when it got to the third sheep, who was Gertrude, and Gertrude became the champion lamb at the school that year, she said, I just can't part with Gertrude. And then eventually she thought it would be nice if Gertrude had a lamb. And, and that happened too. So. <laughs> so we actually headed off to Napier with three sheep in a trailer. Robin wrote a book about Chrissa in 1994. One of the things that stood out to me while reading it was Chrissa's sense of responsibility. She was willing and keen to get up early to look after her animals. At only eight years old, she would get out of bed by 5.30 in the morning. I couldn't help but think about what I was doing at that age. Yes, she she loved the morning and she thought people who didn't get up in the morning early didn't know what the world was really like. That was the best time of the day. And she went out and played with the lambs and fed them and, and then brushed down whichever horse it was at that time and spent time riding the horse. And it was just um, her alarm went off and away she went and... and and spent this, you know, a couple of hours or so before school with her animals. Cursa had two horses before she got Commodore, a five-year-old liver chestnut thoroughbred with a white blaze and three white socks. In the school holidays before she disappeared, she had been volunteering at a local vet clinic and training Commodore for the upcoming Hawke's Bay Royal AMP show. But rain had stopped her from going out for a ride. On September 1st, the first day of spring, the sun finally came out and Cursa was keen to get Commodore some exercise. 
back home from the vet clinic just after midday, she got a call from her friend Lizanne. She was going tramping with her dad and couldn't go riding. But Krista still wanted to go to the beach, perhaps get Commodore into the water. The ocean once frightened him and he reared, but enjoyed it now. She gave him a groom before heading out. And after a chat with her brother's friend who was visiting the vicarage, Krista saddled up, mounted her horse, and said bye to her mother through an open door. It was quarter to three in the afternoon. At 10 to 5, I looked at my watch and I thought, oh, Kirsten will be home soon. And at 5 o'clock, I started to feel quite anxious. And I said to Michael, Kirsten's not home yet. And he said, oh, don't worry, Mum, on that big horse, she could get away from anything. And then it got later and later, and Dan came in at about half past five, it might have even been a bit later, and I said, Curse is not home yet. And he was about to sort of growl, she should be home by now. But he looked at me and I said, she's never late, Dan. So he and Michael went to look for her, and in my mind I said, if she wasn't home by quarter to six, I was going to ring the police. She wasn't, so I phoned the police and said, my daughter went out for a ride today. She's always very responsible, and I would have expected her home earlier. She's not home yet. Within minutes, a police officer arrived at the door and Robin learned a horse had been found wandering loose near Awatoto. Where's that? Robin didn't know. It was about seven kilometres from the vicarage. Usually, Krista would make a left turn when she reached the beach along State Highway 2 towards the city. It appears on this day, she turned right towards Hastings, in unfamiliar territory. A friend of the family confirmed the horse was Commodore, and the search for Krista began. I walked, I kept walking, I couldn't sit down. I just walked sort of out of the lounge, through the hall, into the passage, into the kitchen and round again. And I phoned various people that I thought, would be helpful down there searching. And I put time between the calls just in case, as the police said too, that Kusa could be calling home as well. It was a very dark night and the stars were in the sky and I just looked out at the stars and, and I prayed and I said, please God, please... Send Kusa home. Please let Kusa come home. Do anything to me, but please save my daughter. And I've never been so earnest about anything. In the depth of my being, I wanted my daughter to come home. The police at the time believed Kursa may have fallen off her horse and drowned in the Tutaikuri River near where Commodore had been found. They found parts of a bridle and hoof prints on the sand near a gun emplacement a concrete block built in 1942 during the Second World War when a Japanese invasion was feared. Shortly after 11.30, the police called off the search until daylight the next day. By then I just felt so sick, so sick in my stomach. And I thought of my daughter lying out there somewhere. And I thought maybe she's got a broken leg. Robin went back out to the gun emplacement with friends, but also found nothing. Once back at home, she turned on a lamp 
and decided to wait for her daughter. And then the next morning, I needed to go to this place where she had been. I needed to see it with my own eyes and I needed to search for my daughter. We went there, a number of police and spectators, and one of the police was pointing out to me an area of water and they said, we're going to have this area searched. Cursor may be in there and I just looked and I said, she's not in there. Robin spotted a piece of rope tied to reinforcing steel on the gun emplacement. It matched the piece of rope that had been found on Commodore's bit. The bit is a part of the bridle that goes into the horse's mouth and would mean that every time the horse moved, that rope would have pulled him. It looked like he had been tied there, but broken free. Robin thought this was strange. Cursa wouldn't have done that. She went up to the gun emplacement and started inspecting it. She found something. It was blood. On the grass. It was on the concrete, too. Streaked down the wall, 30 centimeters from the ground. Robin was convinced it was her daughter's blood. And it was. Half a kilometer down here, we'll go left again. Here? No, 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 half down the road, about 500 meters. This is Ian Hollyoak. He was a detective inspector and CIB coordinator in Napier and became the lead investigator in Cursa's case. He retired 18 years ago, and despite the time, he still thinks of Cursa. Yeah, this traffic on here, go left. The case is special to him, not in a nice kind of way, but in a haunting kind of way. It's like a cloud lurking over him, and there's nothing he can do about it. Ian has lived in a number of cities across the country throughout his career with the police. He's now back in Napier and visits the area where Cursa was last seen at least once a year. I suggest going back there with him one autumn day. When we get there, there are a few people fishing along the beach. Ian leads me down a sealed path, and in the distance, you can see a small mound with four trees planted around it. That's it. That's where Cursa was last seen. It's the gun emplacement. But you can't see the concrete anymore. It's been covered up with grass, except for a small bench left on top of the mound for people to sit and contemplate the view. It looks pretty and peaceful, although you're slightly interrupted by the heavy traffic on State Highway 2 and thoughts of what happened there 34 years ago. There's a plaque in memory of Cursa near the trees. Robin placed it there in 1993 to mark the 10th anniversary of her disappearance. It's hidden behind the weeds, and Ian begins clearing them away. He still remembers the first call he got about Cursa. I remember it vividly. I, uh, it was a Friday morning. Uh, I wasn't actually at work. I, I was studying for a, a, uni- a university degree. I had a day off for study leave and I got a call at home on the Friday morning saying, hey boss, there's a kid went missing last night and she was riding a horse down the beach and we can't find her. The uniform branch is searching, but it's, it's looking a bit odd. Uh, I think you better come in. I said, yeah, sure, I'll be there. I'll be there shortly. And I went into the office and started working on the case. Ian says it was the rope that got his attention. It didn't belong to the Jensen's. One piece was found on the bed of the horse, as I mentioned, and another on the gun emplacement. Ian, like Robin, thought this was weird. The focus changed from her drowning to someone else being involved. 
someone who likely tied up the horse there, someone who wasn't Krissa. About 50 Napier police resumed their investigations this morning into the mysterious disappearance last Thursday of a 14-year-old schoolgirl on a horse-riding trip to the outskirts of the city. So far, a big search using helicopters, police divers... Krissa was national news. A teenage girl who went for a ride one spring afternoon was now believed to have been kidnapped, maybe murdered. She wasn't the first girl to go missing in New Zealand. Remember Mona Blades? Her body has yet to be found too. Only 18 years old, she went missing in Hamilton some eight years before Cursa. It was still rare, though, and it shook the community to its core. Yes, they were shocked. I know, journalists use that word loosely in these cases, but this was 1983, before people worried about children walking home alone. And the man heading the inquiry, Detective Inspector Ian Holyoke, says he's now very concerned for the girl. We uh, would seem through our search and inquiries to have eliminated... Uh, any reasonable possibility of, of uh, her having suffered an accident on the beach, and therefore I'm led more and more to the belief that she's been the victim of some foul play. The police search for Cursa eventually covered a 25-kilometre radius. They made a reconstruction video of her last known whereabouts, set up an information post, and a reward of more than $30,000 was posted. You know, I just expected that we would find the body of Cursa Jensen. The search was extensive, controlled by extremely competent police officers and that you know, it just defied belief to me that we could not find her somewhere in that area. One of the first witnesses to come forward was an orchard manager from Fakatu who was driving home on State Highway 2 that day. He contacted police the morning after Cursa was last seen. The man told police that as he drove across the Waitangi Bridge, he saw a girl and a horse at the gun emplacement about 4.20 in the afternoon. A bald, middle-aged man with a white utility with wooden sides was with her too. The witness thought something wasn't quite right, so decided to turn around at the Awatoto fertilizer and go check it out. When he got there, the bald man was gone. But Cursa was still there with blood on her face. She told the witness she had fallen off her horse and someone had gone to call her parents, he then drove off and headed home. But there was no call. It's not until later that we find out the name of this witness. He was William John Russell. The suspicion naturally attaches to the last person to have, to have been known to have seen the victim. And so we investigated very thoroughly the man who was giving us the story. And he was not unknown to the police. And... Uh, but when we checked out his, his um, movements for the previous night, his, um, uh, you know, various people provided an alibi for him. He said he went to help the girl, didn't need any help, and then he turned around for whatever reason, went back the opposite way and, and went home. And, uh, and, and people substantiated that. So we then set about looking for the man in the white truck. Some of the other sightings didn't pan out, including one person claiming to see a man trying to kiss a girl. But some stuck and the police began piecing together what happened that afternoon. This is what we know. At 4.20, two friends arrive at the gun emplacement and see a girl leading a brown horse about 50 metres away. One of them notices she's holding a handkerchief to her face. It looked like it had blood on it, or it was coloured red. This is when John Russell comes in. He says he saw Cursa around 4.20 as well, checks on her, and then leaves although witnesses put him there more around half-past four. 
At 4.40, another person driving to Napier sees an agitated horse, but there's no one around. Cursa appears to be gone. And five minutes later, at 4.45, a surfer arrives at the gun emplacement. There's a horse standing there, looking at him, but again, no Cursa. The police continued to look for the bald man and that white ute described by John Russell. This was the focus of the investigation at the time. More than 800 utes were looked at. Ian Hollyoak says all were cleared. We could never find one that had any association with that area at that time, as best we could tell. That truck that the witness had told us he'd seen did not exist. John Russell went from witness to suspect. A 32-year-old man, married with two children, 175 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 7, of stocky build with thinning dark brown hair. He had been convicted of rape when he was 18. His car in Austin, Cambridge, and house were searched more than once. When word got out that he was being connected to Chris's case, he began receiving hate mail and death threats. Rubbish was dumped on his front lawn. Robin remembers when she first heard of him. Put a whole different sort of on it, you know, because there were all sorts of stories coming in from different people. Maybe a farmer had kidnapped her and he wanted her on the farm with him. You know, all sorts of way out stories that you know, I just switched off with most of the stuff that came up. And then in time, it was in November, the vicarage was next door to the church and Dan was late coming home, you know, he just needed to come through the gateway between the two. I went over and, and I could see he was talking to somebody outside the church at the front and I could see through the glass doors and I thought, oh, okay. And when he came in, back, you know, got home and came in, he was white, white as white. And I said, are you okay? And he said, I've just been talking to John Russell. Yes, John Russell made a drop-by visit to Chrissa's family. It wouldn't be the last time either. The evidence against him began mounting. The rope remained the key exhibit in the case. 42 types of pollens, spores and minerals were found on its strands. These could only be seen when magnified several hundred times. It matched samples taken from Russell's home, car and the orchard where he worked. Two blonde strands of hair found in his car also showed a strong statistical match to Cursa. The hair was studied under a microscope. This was before DNA. More about that later. Ian also had questions about his story. As we know, John Russell told police he saw Cursa and a man while driving over the Waitangi Bridge. I'm now on that bridge with Ian, about 300 metres from the gun emplacement. He tells me someone driving over would have little time to spot a girl in trouble with the bald man. Your vision's not good there. Yeah. And um, and what have you got, maybe five seconds or something? That's right. Here's There's... the car, now you go. Now, one, two, three, four seconds. From that tree blocking your view to that one, you quickly look at that. And... The police reviewed the evidence, and in April the following year, they decided not to lay charges. They didn't have enough. They had the rope, yes, but lawyers could argue that strands of hair made it in the car when John Russell spoke to Chrissa. There was no blood. They took everything that was relevant then and it never showed up anything, which, which is astonishing when 
you know, I've been involved in lots of cases, and it, it's hard to, to hide uh, when, you, when you're subject to scientific analysis. It's hard to hide spots of blood um, or, or fibres or hairs or things, and yet there was nothing to say that she went in that car. And after you know, weeks of intensive searching around the area, there's no, there was nothing to say that she was there somewhere. Being under the microscope wasn't easy for Russell. He began behaving erratically and was admitted to psychiatric hospitals over the years. In February 1985, over a year after Cursa was last seen, he again visited the Jensens. I answered the door and he said, oh, hello, Mrs Jensen, and I said, hello. And he said, do you know who I am? I said, no, I don't know who you are. He looked quite different from the photo and apparently had lost a lot of weight, but I didn't pick up that it was him from the photo. But, but I wondered, you know, he said, are you sure you don't know who I am? And I said, no. He said, um, I'm John Russell. And I said, have you come to tell me where my daughter is? Oh, I wish I knew. And then he went on in a very convoluted fashion about, oh, she might be here or she might be there. Perhaps she's in Canada. It was the most frustrating time. And I just thought, this is my one opportunity. This is my opportunity. I've got to find out where Kusa is. I said, just tell me, tell me where my daughter is. Oh, I wish I knew. And it was just went on like that. And after about 20 minutes, he said, I don't think I've got anything else to say that will help you. Later that year in December, the police got a tip-off that led them to dig on farmland at Pokofai near Hastings. They spent two days digging a 10-metre square hole looking for Chris's body. They found nothing. John Russell was the tipster. Only days later, a car crash made the headlines. He had been behind the wheel, the only one in the car he hit a bridge at Bunnythorpe near Palmerston North and survived. John Russell had visited the Avalon television studio north of Wellington hours earlier, wanting to make a statement on television. He reportedly told the receptionist he would tie up loose ends on the disappearance of Cursa. Russell was not given that opportunity. He eventually did get his voice heard, though. A year later, he gave an interview to the Sunday News alongside his wife. He told the newspaper he had falsely confessed to police in Hastings on the day of the Bunnythorpe crash because of his mental state and his desire to clear it all up. The paper checked with police sources about this at the time, but was told there was no record of such confession. Here are Russell's words read by an actor. I've got nothing to confess. I've done nothing wrong. I'd rather rot in a prison cell all the rest of my life than go through what I've been through. For the last two years, I've been thinking of a girl who disappeared. The girl I saw that day. Now I have to think of myself. To be selfish. And get myself back to what I was two years ago. In the article, his wife described how support from family and friends could not outweigh the strain of being under police scrutiny. His marriage had broken down. She had moved out with the kids. In July 1992, nine years after John Russell saw Cursa that spring afternoon, he killed himself. It was like a door slamming shut, not to be opened again. 
So that was a particularly hard time. I believed he knew the truth. He held on to the information that the police wanted, that I wanted, that Dan wanted, that Michael wanted. You know, we wanted it to find Kusa. Are you 100% convinced that, that he was responsible? I am 99.9% sure because so many factors fit together, but I'm not 100% sure. Ian tells me he was dismayed, but not surprised to hear of John Russell's death. For weeks, he monitored his mailbox to see if he had left a note, details, anything that could help him find Krissa. Nothing arrived. After all these years, Krissa's case is still open. Detective Sergeant Emmett Lynch is the police officer looking after it now. I spoke to him on a couple of occasions, but he didn't want to be recorded for this podcast. He says he looks at Krissa's file once a month and thoroughly reviews it every year. So does he also think John Russell was responsible? A lot of things may point to him, yes, he says, his behaviour after Krissa went missing and his behaviour towards her family. But Mr Lynch says when you look at the evidence... It's another story. There's the rope that's been re-examined and that's still a key exhibit. He tells me they can't do anything more with it and it's being held for any future purposes. Remember the blood found at the gun emplacement? It was originally linked to Cursa through blood type. What about the hair found in John Russell's car? Both have been tested for DNA since too. They believe the blood and hairs belong to her. Mr. Lynch wouldn't go into detail about why it's believed and not truly known, but he does remind me that we must be careful here. Yes, hair found in John Russell's car is believed to be Cursa's, but as Ian says, it doesn't mean she was in his car. He says John Russell said he was there, he said he had talked to her, and so he could have picked it up innocently, particularly at a beach where there's a breeze. Cursa was injured, she had blood, yet there was no blood in his car. Mr. Lynch says the police are still very open to the possibility that it wasn't him that took her, or maybe he had an accomplice. John Russell would have been looked at extremely closely and would have been under scrutiny, he says. That could have been stressful and affected his mental health. That could explain his behavior. For Robin, though, it's not about who took Krissa, but about where. It's a riding jacket and her job she got this. We were living in Napier and she took Kathy to the AMP show and we got her a riding jacket and boots and The jacket and was had, hanging in one of Robin's spare bedrooms at home. It's black with red lining and three buttons, and it has pins from the Fakatane and Hawks Bay Hunt Clubs on it. Robin tells me she's kept it over the years because if Chris is ever found, it will be laid on her coffin and buried with her. I don't think she's alive, no. No, I mean, it would be a very rare chance that she was alive. I think that I can't even imagine what sort of scenario, and I probably don't want to imagine what sort of scenario, um, because that wouldn't be any good for me. What do you think happened to her that day? I think undoubtedly she was attacked near the gun emplacement, very close to the gun emplacement, because uh, her blood was found there. So 
she was attacked, she was hurt in some way for that to happen. I think she's been taken from that place, but where she's been put I do not know. A coroner declared Chrissa dead in November 1998 and that on the balance of all probabilities, she died on September 1st, 1983. Robin hopes someone listening knows where her daughter is. You sometimes hear of past girlfriends or friends coming forward to police with a tip years and years after a crime. Maybe whoever's responsible shared information with somebody during a drunken night. Maybe there was a slip of the tongue. I'll never give up hope. You know. Somebody asked me, you know, would there, would there be a time when I would say, right, stop, that's it, you can't do any more, stop. And you get your friends together and you say, this is it. And I thought, how stupid can you be? You know, a mother doesn't forget her child. You know, I could no more forget Kusa than fly to the moon. You know, she's part of me, and and um, she's very, very important to me, as is my son and my grandchildren. A mother doesn't forget her baby. Robin was willing to speak to me about Kursa, but I know it wasn't easy for her to go over the details with me. When I first spoke to her over the phone. She told me something that stayed with me. She says with time, it's become harder to cope. I can't talk from experience. I haven't suffered that kind of loss. But doesn't the saying go with time, it gets easier? No, she tells me. She's 72 and time is running out. One day, I may be dead and she may not be found. And so there's an urgency for me as I'm getting older to pull out all the plugs, so to speak. And it's been very interesting that while I've felt like that and not said anything, except perhaps to Ian Holyoke or the person who's in charge of the case now, it amazes me how the media have picked up on this too and want to get Kusa's story out there from people who haven't heard it who don't know who she is, don't know that she's a darling, dearly loved daughter, and would now be contributing to the care of animals in this country. She would have been a vet. Those things have been robbed from her. But to be able to locate her and put her in a decent place to rest forever is vitally important to me. Robin wants to be buried alongside her parents at St. Peter's in the Forest Anglican Cemetery in Auckland, the city she now calls home. If Cursa is ever found, she will be buried there too. This podcast has been created and hosted by me, Paloma Migoni. Technical production by Phil Benj. The executive producer is Tim Walken. Thank you to Nataonga Sound and Vision for the archive audio. You can see video and photos by Rebecca Parsons King at rnz.co.nz, which drill into some of the issues raised in this podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Lost on iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, please don't forget to rate us and review us so others can find this series. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in other real-life podcasts from RNZ, try Eyewitness, which gives you a take on moments in history from those who were there when it happened. And next week, we look at the story of Judy York, a single mother of two who went out to a party in Matapihi 
and didn't return. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.